installment of Innovation Crush. Uh, my name is Chris Denson, and in case you're just now tuning in for the first time, um, this show covers all things marketing, innovation, ideas, and the smart people making them happen. Um, and today, the ball does not stop rolling today with Elliot Kotick. Is that right? Or Kotek? Kotek. Kotek. Yeah. Damn it. I knew it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's always like a 50-50 thing. Yeah. Um, so thank you for, for joining us today. Um, this is this is pretty cool. Um, you look like a you look like a nice person. Oh, thanks, man. You, <laughs> yeah, you look like a nice guy. Like, genuinely. Yeah, we must admit that we do know people in common, and that person in common is a nice guy. He's so. a super nice guy. So generally... Everyone I meet through Yarrow yep. is uh, seems to work out okay. So uh, yeah, Yarrow gave me like the biggest hug yesterday when I ran into he's him. He's a big hugger. <laughs> it's like you know, I grew up without a dad, so I'm like, uh, I don't know what this feels like. And he grew up in Montana around a lot of trees and bears. <laughs> so if anyone's going to give you a bear hug, he's going to give you. He's the one. Exactly. No. Um, so listen, I, you know, I, I came across you a few weeks ago, and I'm like, this dude's amazing. Um, so give me the one-on-one on, you know, the, you know the, the abbreviated version of where you are today, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into some questions and, and answers. Okay, cool. Thanks for that, though. But, um, yeah, so I'm the content chief and co-founder of Not Impossible, uh, and it was founded by a guy named Mick Ebling. Uh, he actually started it as a foundation uh, with a single project known as... Uh, the iWriter back in 2009 and basically everything we do can be summed up by a couple of kind of tenets right founding tenets and one is technology for the sake of humanity there's a lot of tech you know we walk around here at South by Southwest and other places and see yes and we see that there's like things that make uh, everything we know faster stronger better smaller cuter whatever right but how is that going to actually impact our lives on a day-to-day basis? Right. And can we take it and give it to people who lack access, such as like they've just got the financial cost of whatever they need is too high, the physical ability to do whatever it is they need to do, right. whether it's walk or communicate, is too, that bar is too high for them, they don't have that ability, or they're in a region of the world that just does not get the tools that we have where we have them so can we provide that technology this latest technology can we reappropriate it and give it to these people Um, even if it's being developed in gaming or entertainment can we give it to them to make their lives a little bit better easier um, and and thereby kind of improve the world and the people around us. So you don't so you don't make bit emojis. <laughs> that, that, that would be cool. So we do, yeah. But that's the thing is that nothing is out of reach. Like we can also repurpose right um, old technologies that may have been thought of for a different purpose. Yeah. Um, and say, you know what, this can actually help this person in this other country get access to this channel. Well, even if you look at like to that point right I, the, I joked about the emoji but now that I said it out loud I'm, I'm thinking like that you know that's it could be a communication tool right for people who, right. who you know in areas that have high uh, liter- or low literacy rates exactly right? like, in, in fact there are pharmacology applications to it people have been um, using uh, there was a kid I met uh, like a young high schooler that I met at the Intel Science Fair last year who had developed a system for people to be able to 
um, identify better what drugs they need to take, how often they need to take it in places that have low literacy. Um, and it was done with a lot of emoticons and, and emojis. And basically, this will make you feel better. This is how many times you need to take sad it. Sad face, happy face. How many pills, right. sad face, happy face. How are you feeling? Like, doctors use it a lot. Um, they'll show you a, a chart with, you know, extreme pain to, to no pain from a really kind of uh, angry, yeah. tense face to a happy face. They'll use that to, to gauge what someone's feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, that breaks down a lot of barriers. Right? Totally, just in yeah. Terms of communication and all that stuff. Super simple. Um, so, so give us some examples, right? Like, you know, you were at the Intel Science Fair, you know, and you, you look at the Not Impossible website. I mean, there's, like, it's just sensory overload of wow, right? Yeah. So, like, that's the great thing is that we get to do a few cool things. And, and you know, when we talk about technology for the sake of humanity and how we're implementing it, what we've done over the course of the last couple of years and the projects that we're best known for, the iWriter was the first one. So tell us what the iWriter is. Yeah, year. so that that was for a an urban artist, a street artist named Tempt One, mm-hmm. um, one of the predominant graffiti taggers down in, in L.A., and he was struck down by ALS, which a lot of people know from the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Yes, but not a lot or of from people. the series Empire. Oh right, there's someone with ALS. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the uh, Lucius Lyon. You'll see the Terrence Howard character. Yeah, the Terrence Howard character has ALS. Like no it, way. Yeah, really? He's got the shivers and like he's got early onset. Wow. ALS, yeah. So. Well, Tempt felt this tingling and uh, and he that what happens is you actually become fully paralyzed. Like Stephen Hawking has ALS, uh, Professor Hawking, and the only thing you can move and control are your eyes right so the rest of your body is shut down you're completely locked in and if you don't have access to the world's greatest tools like professor hawking um and you may not have insurance etc then a lot of uh communication devices were not accessible to you it was really left to the christopher reeves and stephen hawkings of the world right um so back in 2009 uh, Mick brought a team of hackers together who then got a cheap pair of glasses from the Venice Beach boardwalk, hacked open a PlayStation camera, attached that so that it was looking back into the eye of Tempt. And basically, Tempt's pupil acted like the tip of a pencil. So if you can imagine moving your eye in the shape of a letter, uh, that's what he that's would be so doing. Amazing. So, yeah, so he was able to then draw um, on a computer screen using this tool. And then on this particular night, they hooked it up to a projector, placed it in the parking lot outside the hospital, projected it up onto the wall opposite his hospital room. So he was lying there completely paralyzed and moving his eyes to draw and it was being projected in his peripheral vision. He was doing virtual graffiti on the side of the building opposite his (laughs) his hospital room. So super cool. Had no kind of PR plan in place at the time. It was just something that... Um, a commercial producer essentially uh, was doing as a Christmas gift instead of sending bottles of wine and stuff to everybody right. and that ended up getting uh, Time Magazine's top 50 inventions of the year and enabled him to do a TED talk yeah. and a whole bunch of stuff around around this particular project how, and how, does, how does something like that you know, kind of go. I'm using the quotation fingers, but go viral, right? Yeah. Because if if it is something like, hey, I'm just doing this for my friend, and like, but then suddenly it's Time Magazine. And exactly, t- and that's the other part of our business is that 
in order for it to go viral, there needs to be something to go viral, right? If you do something just because you're a good guy to help someone out, all well and good, and you're unlikely to tell people about it if you're a really super good guy, right? right? You're not branding it, you're not advertising it anyway. But because we believe in the power of these devices to cheaply, in a DIY way, benefit people's lives, we want as many people to know about them as possible. Right. Uh, so in that instance, they, you know, they made a documentary, a little documentary about it, uh, called Getting Up, and so the word started getting out. And now, so what we do now with Not Impossible, so that was a foundation that took a few years, Mick was doing the speaking circuit, and then when we came together, um, it was really to make this a proper business. Yeah. And so what we do is we engage with really smart people and a couple of cheerleaders that will get a project going whether they're people from advertising backgrounds or just mums at home or whoever it is um anyone who's interested we'll put these teams together they'll come up with a way to solve an issue that we're facing either people have written it into us and we've felt particularly compelled to it or it's something that's been on our radar and so we'll bring them together to solve that problem and then we'll create content around it as well. Right. So, and then that content, we bring in a, a sponsor, um, a marketing partner. Um, and on our next project, Project Daniel, we had the benefit of, we had the benefit of two companies, Presipart, which is a precision engineering company, mm-hmm. uh, were the first to kind of give us a, a check to help us with that project. And then Intel came on board. Awesome. And we believe in the power of brands, obviously, to amplify messages sure. uh, much better than we can, much better than anyone else can. Um, they're the ones who are skilled at it. They're the ones with the departments that make those things happen. And so Project Daniel, we sent a team of four people to Sudan with 3D printers. Uh, we'd read about this story about this kid who'd had both his arms blown off. Mm. Um, 14-year-old kid who had said that he felt like his life was not going to be worth living and wished that he had died. And as a 14-year-old, imagine like a 14-year-old thinking like that, just thinking that their their self is worthless. Um, And anyway, there's this doctor in the region. Which sounds like most 14-year-olds, though. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, you're not alone. Although you have no arms, (laughs) you have the same problem everywhere. That's right. But uh, in the the Sudan, I guess the the line between life and death is pretty narrow as it is. Um, and not being able to feed or clothe yourself and having to rely on a 12-year-old right. to do that for you um, is uh, makes the situation a little bit more tenuous. But he, we read about him, we read about this guy, Dr. Tom, an American, a New Yorker, um, former, is now a Hall of Fame college football player from Brown, um, who had gone out to Sudan and was treating the Nubin people um, services an area of about a million people and is the only doctor out there at this hospital and the hospital's solar powered you know it's it's wow. crazy yeah. and this guy's a saint like really and um, so we read about this story and we we started planning the trip um, for a team to go out there to visit them with 3D printers because we'd read about this guy we'd actually written about this guy on the Not Impossible site right. who had invented the first 3D printed prosthetic hand 
called the Robo Hand. Uh, his name's Richard Van Ars out of South Africa. Pretty inventive name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Robo Hand. <laughs> oh, what, what am I going to call this thing? And this guy had chopped his own fingers off in an accident. Oh, wow. And then he just set about designing something that would work for himself and ended up finding something that would work for others. He put the files up online, open source, for anyone to use, which is a huge gesture. Right. Um, and so we flew him out to L.A. We brought a team of hackers together um, again, uh, former physical therapist, a uh, you know IDEO entrepreneur in residence, a engineer from New York, um, the head of a 3D printing company called uh, Printerbot, came down from uh, Sacramento, from NorCal. Uh, So all these people kind of gathered in a room over a couple of days, and then we sent a team out to Sudan, and they 3D printed limbs for this kid. He was able to feed himself for the first time in two years. And then taught a group of local people how to use the machines and put together these arms. And these these guys had the equivalent of a fourth to sixth grade education. So it shows you how intuitive this this kind of technology is. And they established um, what was then the world's first 3D printing prosthetics lab. So, so beginning to end, I mean, that's an amazing, amazing project. So beginning to end, like, what, what kind of timeline are we talking about? From time to time, yes, well, let's do this with your robo hand. Yeah. To, like, actually... Six months. That's it? Yeah. Like, the, the pitch, the idea came, to, came in, you know, someone had sent us the article in June... Uh, we committed to the project. We started. We had the Make Weekend in October. Yep. Uh, the team left at. Well, Mick went to visit Richard to get an extra training session mm-hmm. in in South Africa at the end of October. Um, and then on November 11th of that year, Daniel fed himself for the first time. And by the time the guys had landed back in LA and New York and London and all that sort of stuff, after. Um, the team in in Sudan, the new people who had just been newly trained had already printed two more arms. Now, do, and now in this in these scenarios, do you guys go back and you know to for updates and see how things are doing? Yeah. Or to help them even like if there's a new technology that that can be applied to that system, like how, how long do you stay attached to the project? Yeah. The intention is to try not to. Uh, eventually, depending right. on where that project takes place. Yeah. But given that this project took place in a place that's so remote that they don't have access to a lot of the tools that they need to do be locally sustainable, right. uh, we've sent them more filament, we've sent them a couple more motors for the printers, and the printers have you know broken down at different times. Um, so we've continued to supply them whatever they've needed, even just clothes and some food and other things that we've come across so by awesome. just in conversation or right. by presenting the project to people who are like we'd like to send them something we've facilitated that um, and then th- despite the fact that they're a solar powered hospital in the middle of a war zone they do have internet which is the beautiful thing <laughs> <We're> so, really <laughs> and that's the great yeah. thing about all these like open source files and these technologies is that as the hand itself gets better as other people take those files and make new ones like 
you know, we're, we're, we're seeing um, videos go viral of Robert Downey Jr. present a kid with an I Iron Man hand, which we're like, that's amazing, right? Yeah. This, at the same guy, I think the same kid had received another superhero arm, like maybe a Star Wars arm about a month ago. Um, <laughs> and then, like, these kids all around the country are, are printing out hands for, you know, one did a, like a, st- a Stormtrooper hand for a kid in their neighborhood. Like, kids at schools that are getting 3D printers are right. doing this thing. And it's really a phenomenal thing is that it's happening all over the world. As the files get better, we can update them, send them digitally. Like it really takes nothing to uh, have this be completely accessible on a worldwide level um, and shared and downloaded, etc. for free. Well, it's pretty interesting. I mean, like if 2009 was kind of the first project and we're six years now, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned internet access and the, the how the world has kind of shrunk a little bit, which I think primes you for success. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that we, the maker movement has taken off in that time. Like Project Daniel happened in 2013. Right. Um, and, you know, and 2013, you started seeing like maker fairs around the country mm-hmm. pop up. Um, they've always been around, but their beginnings were with people crocheting and doing pottery and other things. Now that right. people are making drones and 3D printing all different sorts of stuff as hobbies. Right. And it all comes back to that everything, yes, everything is accessible. You can buy all this stuff on a consumer level from Amazon and have it delivered to your house. You right. can, uh, if you've got a if you want to know how to use it, you can look up YouTube videos and just watch it. You don't need to go to some academic institution to right. learn that. You don't need to be part of an innovative company like a GE or a Microsoft or an Apple right. or, a, you know, you don't need to be part of the United Nations to to get access to these right. tools anymore. You can do it by yourself. But I, wonder, I, wonder if that, I wonder if that, like, that trend or that, you know, the... The lack of, or the declining need for traditional education or traditional institutions in some cases, um, you know, I wonder where the larger institutions will find their place, right? Like, if you think about, you don't need to go to an engineering school technically, right? Um, then, where, where is the use of education, especially in, with the some of the people that you serve, you know, only have access to education to a certain level. Um, I, I don't know if you put it just a thought that popped into my head yeah thoughts around it. well I, I have the, the thought for me is, is kind of how we receive our education is different right so you still need the education if you in fact South by Southwest Interactive have an interesting breakdown as to the people that are registered for the conference what how many of those people percentage wise have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree or higher compared to the US in general compared to the world in general mm. and if and it seems to be the case that the more educated you are, the more you have the ability to innovate. And the more debt you have. And the more... <laughs> depending on what country you come from. Uh, but that seems to be the case. But where you get your education from is changing. There's a lot of uh, universities, that are pl- even MIT and Harvard, that are placing their courses online. Right. You may not get the credentials for them, but you have the opportunity to study them. Right. So just like we go to YouTube to watch how to do things, um, how to get things done, even if it's just how to open a package, you know, right. to how to put together a 3D printer or whatever. Right. Um, 
likewise we can also if we get stuck we can go to community notice boards and other places where mm. people are sharing and we can post our problem and people will comment we can go to coding sites and get people to contribute coding if they believe in our project our communities are don't have to be academic in terms of face-to-face anymore sure they can be virtual and exist in the virtual world what's interesting when you say like this that ability to innovate changes based on the level of education that you have because if you look at innovation as the you know the ability to rethink you know and then to invent versus do you know i think one thing is yes i can send you a 3d printer and show you how to use it and then that is kind of like your skill set for whatever period of time yeah but the you know the ability to like continually think outside the box and come with new things and then the other question might be maybe maybe the people who have the education and are innovating are the only people who are able to show people or connect with people as to how they're innovating uh, and communicate what they're innovating whereas other people who are coming up with solutions on a day-to-day basis in the real world quote-unquote in a developing nation uh, their MacGyver-esque techniques to come up with a solution for something might live and die with them do you know there's actually a real thing called the MacGyver method (laughs) which was created by the guy who uh, created MacGyver. No way. And he goes around and he speaks about the MacGyver method about like hacking solutions. <laughs> like, I'm not surprised. And and he's doing a contest right now and he's looking for, like he's partnered with like all these STEM education wow. institutions and looking for the next female MacGyver. Wow. <laughs> At first I was thinking you know a little too much about it and now and then I and then now I realize it's actually really well, super, then, super well, cool. Then my thing was. <laughs> I would like to get this guy an innovation crush. Like, that's like the, the writer of MacGyver. Or yeah, just like his, yeah, no, his that's crazy. perfect. And that's the thing is that, and now there are also, but that, that's the beautiful thing is that with an interest in this now, you have people like, um, there's this guy, Jose Gomez Marquez, out of MIT, at Little Devices Lab. And he started a thing called Maker Nurse because nurses are coming up with workaround solutions for all these different pieces of equipment. Um, and you'll often see this when you have someone in hospital that when you have a change of shift, a nurse will come in and go, oh, she did it this way, he did it that way. Um, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Yeah. Right? They've all got their own methods of doing it. But he's started a make a nurse because he's trying to capture all those things. Why is someone doing it a little di- bit differently? Is it because the equipment isn't good enough or is it just because they've come up with an innovative way of using it that makes the patient's life a little bit better? Right. So if we can capture all that information, then it doesn't have to just go away with that person. We yeah. can capture that knowledge and harvest that innovation, which is pretty great. Um, but yeah, our and so we have the ability to tell those stories because we partner with Intel, yeah. because we partner with HP, HP, um, etc. Um, on our latest project, we partnered with HP. It's called Don's Voice, um, and it's a communication tool again for someone with ALS. Um, but it it digitizes his interface, so he's able to speak um, through the use of a tablet, a, comu- yeah. a computer, to his wife and other people. Um, so whereas before he was using a letter sheet, yeah. blinking his way through various letters in a very archaic sort of way. So you guys also have um, the editorial platform, which you yeah. mentioned, which you, I think you serve as editor-in-chief of. Yeah, yeah. it's notimpossiblenow.com. Yeah. And the cool thing there is that, yeah, we get to tell our stories, but really what we do on a daily basis is share the work of thousands of other people that are doing cool right. stuff to help people. 
That's great. So, and it was, you know, when I look at you from an organizational standpoint, you've got the labs, you've got the projects, and then you're like, eh, let's put out, let's, let's create content too. <laughs> you know, um, just as a, as a business person, what was the decision making process was that, like to grow that? And to, I mean, it, it seems like it's rather successful. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's a really interesting thing is that we saw, we saw our ability to tell stories as being the nexus of everything. And my background personally is that I've run magazines and contributed to publications around the around the place, around the globe. Um, so my skill set is in editorial um, and creating documentaries and mini documentaries and things like that. Um, so it just kind of fell into our wheelhouse, whereas Mick is much more in the world of commercial production. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so he has the ability to bring on these brands and bring them ideas and pitch them ideas and uh, on the editorial level we're telling the stories of these amazing people and it serves as a great source for us of the type of people we want to partner with to, mm-hmm. to give effect to the ideas that we have to help certain individuals so when we get a letter in saying you know you really need to help this population in this place um, we find we look at it through an editorial lens and right. that editorial lens is help one help many so if we can tell a story about one person like Daniel or Don um, or Tempt uh, then it makes it easier for people to connect um, only going back to that kind of institutional kind of system that we were talking about a second right. ago if we only institutions only huge companies like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or Microsoft or um, Intel.org or Google.org or, you know, only those, or Bono and Red, only those sorts of people can tackle stuff like polio or poverty or AIDS. Um, They can tackle the big issues that affect millions of people. And they they can distribute stuff to millions of people. For us, we're just a couple of individuals who kind of formed a little collective with the help of volunteers. Mm -hmm. So what can we do? And what can we do that is effective and real? We can help one person. Everyone can help one person. There's always someone in your community you can help if you don't have the money to grab, you know, take a project overseas. Um, So there's things that you can do on a one-to-one level. Mm -hmm. And if we can create technology for one person, we know that that one person is not alone with that problem. And so it will then, by offering it for free or by open source or somehow distributing it, we know it can then help thousands of other people. Right. Um, by sending that message out that we can help one person, again, we can help many by just delivering that message of you can help one person too. Right. Like the additive effect of that is power, powerful. Um, and psychologically, we all know we can help one person, but when we um, look at a mass problem like Ebola, we all think that individually we can't really do anything about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems taxing like, or overwhelming. It's, yeah, it's too big right. for me. And, is, and then that, like, is there, a, is there an interest to grow and build, you know, replicatable, scalable solutions, you know, for instance, if we, if we take the, you know, the 3D printed arms, yeah. um, you know, is there an interest to grow that as a, as a business unit yeah. that does this all the time? Absolutely. And so that's the thing for each one of our projects. Um, with the right funding, it can have it can it can then be furthered by establishing a business unit around it. So Project Daniel was printing three three D printing limbs for 
people, but our idea behind global labs is to not just do 3D printing, but all sorts of additive manufacturing, all sorts of other pieces of equipment. Maybe there's there's guys called open source ecology mm-hmm. um, who believe that there's a certain number of tools that will create the infrastructure that any city needs right. and that people can build those themselves with very kind of limited materials. Um, so with those tools of civilization being taught, if we can expand our labs to have a few more of those tools in them and put them in places that are traditionally seen as being takers, like that we're giving aid to, um, then we can enable those people to then contribute back to the global conversation because we're skilling them in the ways that they're then able to do and create things that are indigenous needs for them they can look at their local problems and say hey we just learned this skill we can apply it here and then they can contribute that back to all different places around the world by being part of global labs and then we're not looking at these places like haiti and 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 vietnam and cambodia and all these places as needing aid from us but really like we're giving them the skills or we're teaching them the skills that everybody should have it's not a band-aid anymore right like no it's, it's going in and like actually like change the word change actually is very different than charity right like it's uh, <laughs> and and it's empowerment you know it's, right. it's it's enabling so so really just like providing some pretty limited things like in scope it's just a few simple things and the knowledge around those few simple things we might get innovation out of these places um, that we've never thought of because we don't have the same problems that they face on a daily basis right. and if they then are able to share those with people in other countries um, that are going through the same thing, then uh, by connecting those people to the global conversation, we open up a whole new realm of innovation. Yeah, we always say like the... the, the best innovation comes from diverse perspectives, right? And so the more things you see, witness, feel, the more people you bring to the table with varying points of view and, and things like that. Yeah. What's that behind you? Is that... <laughs> just now notice this. Hey, dude, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a Daniel arm oh, here sweet. in the room. Yeah. Um, but yes, bringing all those people, including designers, you know, people don't really think of uh, designers uh, as being crucial to tech innovation. Obviously, big companies do. Right. Um, but that's the thing is like with Apple is that they know what's intuitive. They know what we're going to like. Right. But if we can make the DIY accessible stuff um, look good right. and feel good, then people are going to want to use it. Um, and that's important too. Otherwise, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, why don't we hear more of these stories? Right? Like, it, it, I think we're starting to. Uh, you know, but I feel like I hear we joke earlier about Bitmoji and Facebook and yeah. you know other, even just the idea of three D printing, right? Um, just as a as a thing yeah. versus like real solutions. I feel like we, you know. We sensationalize like the social chatter and like tools that allow oh the new phone blah 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 like that's right. Um, but why don't we hear more of these stories? Yeah, well, I, I really think we're going to. I think that um, you know with the success that we've seen, um, the reason why you know the awards and like we're up for a couple of innovation awards here at South by Southwest and all the members of the team are nominated you know the inventor from South Africa like everybody even Daniel you know has a credit on the can awards that awesome. we got, you know that we won last year and the reason why those are important uh, you know is because we can then say to brands 
who have these marketing budgets every year, traditionally all these stories are getting told out of CSR departments and non-profits, mm -hmm. right? And non-profits are notoriously bad at selling themselves. They always yeah. have been, just because they've never had the budgets, and the, you know. Right. And CSR departments similarly are usually given to the person who raises their hand and volunteers to take on that work at that company, right? And they're seen as being kind of uh, the things that we have to do or should be doing right. or make us feel kind of cool or kind of boost morale a little around the office. But when these sorts of initiatives are now leaking across into the marketing departments that get a much more massive budget every year, um, then we can see actual change in the implementation of these stories. And I think that um, everyone's looking for authenticity and mm -hmm. sincerity and um, quote-unquote organic Right. You know, whatever, however you want to spin any of those words that have become the buzzwords of the industry, people don't want to be feel they don't want to feel like they're being sold to, yeah. and they want to buy from companies that they think, even subconsciously, are doing good. And when they have a choice between two equals, they'll choose the one that they think is doing a little bit better in the world for right. the world. And um, by us kind of achieving that recognition, we can say to these companies. You don't have to give up your bottom line. You don't have to give up your bonuses. You don't have to think of this as a charitable exercise. You can devote some of your marketing budget to exercises like this, mm -hmm. and they will get you the attention that, or greater attention than what you would normally get from your normal product advertising. Right. And you will be doing good in the world. Totally. And it's great business. People are going to buy your product more because of it. Right. So we don't want I like you... how your eyes lit up when you were telling them. Like, yeah, it's like you don't have to give up anything. <laughs> yeah. It's not a... Sa you don't have to sacrifice to be charitable. You can embed the charitable actions and the empowerment actions within your existing budgets, right. within your existing strategies around the messages that you want to... Convey. At the same time, it's good for organizations like yours to exist because you already have the system in place, right? You have the system, the relationships, the thinking, and it's like, hey, Brad, come on board and join us. Like, you don't, you, we'll do the work for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, which is help us do the work and will help tell the story. Well, that's the thing is that we have enough, like we now have 10 or more projects in play. Wow. And we are waiting. Um, and approaching and engaging with different brands to say, look, these are projects that are going to happen. Mm -hmm. They're going to be great for someone. Yep. They might as well be great for you. If you want to come on board, come on board. That's great. Um, why do you care? Right? <laughs> you like, you know, editor, uh, writer, filmmaker, and all of a sudden, like, not all of a sudden, obviously, but, you know, this is, these are, these are, you, these are passionate yeah. projects. Like, yeah. why, do you, why do you care? Um, like, I don't know what, you know, obviously you can kind of, like, everyone kind of points back to either their parents or a significant teacher or right. someone. You know, to me, my parents were always engaged in community. Um, mm. My mom's a school teacher, my mom was a school teacher for decades. Um, my dad was always at some sort of activity. He could never just participate in something. He always had to change it or be the president of it so that right. he could, you know, make it, be, change it, tweak it, whatever, teach skills, do things. And I don't know, I think that sort of stuff rubs off when you're around it. Um, and you, I don't, I mean, to me, it's just fun. It's <laughs> fun. Like we, we get to really do stuff that matters 
Um, at the moment, people are watching what we do, right. um, and that is a, an addictive cycle. And so if we can continue it and encourage other people to do the same, we welcome competition in this space because that means that everyone's doing what we do, which means every, that people are genuinely benefiting on a very real level. Real lives are being changed. Yeah, that's awesome. Because um, I'm always curious, especially when you know people are doing things for social good and uh, like where that that motivation comes from. So yeah, that's pretty awesome. I have an inability to say no uh, when something's cool, right? I if suffer I, from the same thing. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's, oh, definitely, it's definitely an illness because it's like you realize that you need to have you know however many hours more in each day, and um, and thankfully I've been kind of. Um, almost famous amongst my friends for not needing much sleep, uh, but at some point it's going to hit. So I'm going to take I'll sleep a, when I'm dead. I'm going to take advantage of it while I can, at least. That'll be your next thing—a a sleep simulator of some sort. Yeah, I don't you know, something I, up to your head. And you're I like, know. Oh, your body feels rested. Even I know. I see a sci-fi movie about that. It's like you you get to stay awake, but you don't retain the memory of everything. There you go. There you go. Yeah. 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 You are a filmmaker. Um, so where's 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 Mick from? Because you're 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 an Aussie. I'm an Aussie. Yeah, Mick is born in California, raised in Arizona. Okay. Um, went to uh, played basketball for uh, Air Force Academy, I think, and uh, and yeah, and and is a commercial producer and did like the opening title sequences for Quantum of Solace. Oh wow! Like it, yeah. as an executive producer and stuff like that. So did he work on MacGyver though? No, <laughs> Kite Runner, Quantum Assaults, uh, oh, and, wow. okay. and kind of the digital effects for um, Will Ferrell's uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Mm. He was a producer of that. So, like, has always kind of been kind of a creative commercial producer. Right. Um, and then I've got a mutt of a background. I have a. It's it's a little bit weird. I have a science degree in pharmacology and toxicology. I have a law degree, and then I went to theatre school, and then I went to UCLA for screenwriting. So, so you so couldn't say no to all those. Like things. I'm saying, I'm like I'm curi- I'm addicted, and I'm curious, and I think curiosity is one of those things that is brilliant. I love that. Actually, my Twitter handle is like culturally curious idea maker. Oh, uh, cool. I don't know how true that is. Yeah, but uh, but I wrote it. You need to be cur- You need to be curious to so that you can have understanding, so that you can have empathy. Um, I think ignorance is the worst thing of every. Like yeah. it's just the worst factor. Ignorance and insecurity. But I also to... think that curiosity is like you know it's a skill, and and I think it, it, you know it's kind of like Michael Jordan, right? Like he has a bas- he has a skill at basketball, or, and you know, but even when it wasn't quite fine tuned, he didn't make it as a high school basketball team, right? And I think that curiosity. You are obviously at the apex of what that can do if you know um, uh, if you pay attention to it. Right, so. curiosity and commitment. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, why? How did you end up in the states? Right? Because I mean, it yeah. seems like you could have done this from anywhere. Well, or could you have? I don't know. You know, like you also are known by certain people as a certain person. Right. Uh, and when you grow up in Australia, you don't go off to university. Generally, if you live in Melbourne or Sydney, you go to university in one of those towns. Right. Like if you didn't get into the course you wanted, you don't fly up to Sydney and do it there. You just do a different course. It's right, a weird right, mentality. Right. And you, so you grow up, you socialize, you work, play. Um, you've got like five different social groups, but all in the same town. Because you never left, and so if you're known, I think if you 
uh, have people have expectations of you a certain way and you become, you know, a lawyer or whatever, then that's certainly um, how people then view you or categorize you. And sometimes you need to leave home to be, to experiment a little and to try other things um, and to have the freedom to fail somewhere else because you don't have the people that you know and love. The freedom to fail, that's an interesting, I mean, a lot of people talk a lot about failure, but yeah. Actually, having the freedom to fail, especially in the context you just put it in, is actually pretty, pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I think you need that. So you need to have uh, a couple of moments when no one's watching, essentially. Right. So, or especially if you're self-conscious. Yeah. Um, some people don't suffer from that and can go off and do everything that they want to do and allow allow people to judge them. However, uh, but I think I I tend to be a little bit more sensitive. Um, so I think going off to New York, I moved to New York in 2000, um, gave me the freedom to, to play a little bit and find some other things that I not just loved doing, but could then commit to. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And then you, when you make the move to the West Coast, I think about, you know, and this is probably the first time I've gotten to even ask this question on the show, but I'm like, I'm kind of infatuated with the cross-section of Los Angeles you know, as Hollywood, quote unquote, and um, and the Silicon Beach, right? Like you've got this whole big startup and tech community, but you've also got directors and really creative, you know, people that come from the entertainment industry. And I think, you know, when you hone that skill in on it, and skew it to uh, the kinds of stuff that you're doing, like you get really interesting mixes of creativity. Yeah, and because Silicon Beach didn't exist as, and it's probably as as Venice locals, um, we don't really love that term. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. we, we're trying to, but, um, but that's the thing is that now the people who are growing up in L.A., and not just seeing the film industry or the movie industry or the entertainment industry as the pinnacle or the peak to us to which to aspire they're seeing googles and snapchats and all these other kind of places pop up around us and so those i think a lot of creative people are going to start who would otherwise go into film because of family and other contacts and just the nature of the industry in the city um, are going to be leaking over to the tech and innovation space, and that's going to be an interesting yeah. So I like a, that, that collision is going to be is uh, obviously by the work you guys are doing is pretty. I mean, just the thinking that, that uh, goes into it. Um, so the show is called Innovation Crush, uh, but I'm curious as to what's out there that you might be crushing on. Like when you when you look out and you're like, oh man, like they nailed that thing. Or, oh, in terms of uh, there's a couple. There's like in terms of just even people that I've profiled, there's a kid. I, I, I have a crush on kids that are doing this stuff, right? I think they're just awesome. And we, I interviewed this 12-year-old who's now, he's probably 14 now, his name's Shubham Banerjee, and he's from, he lives in uh, San Jose. And uh, he got a flyer in the mail um, about his local blind school or local blind, you know, like local blind association, and he asked his parents again, curiosity, how do blind people communicate? And they, they told him, "We're too busy. Look it up on Google." So he went off and found out about Braille, and then used his Lego system that costs three hundred and fifty bucks to build a Braille printer, and reached out to a blind guy to test it, and he for three hundred something bucks made a Lego Braille printer. What? 
And when I asked him, I, like I said, you must get flyers like this all the time that ask for stuff, you know, that want some sort of a donation or whatever. How can't, why did this compel you? And he's like, actually, is this the first time I checked the mail in a, checked the mail in a long time? You know? <laughs> and I just like, love that totally he, random, yeah. yeah, it was just a random thing. And then he posted this printer online granted kids don't know much about patents right right so he didn't think about any of that he just thought about patents for the the, uh, american audience (laughs) so he didn't think much about patents (laughs) and so he just wanted to share what he'd done and he put it up online and it went viral and he was invited to the white house and went on nbc and then became cool at his school especially with the younger kids at the school right. so they can now look up to him as someone who's achieving real good you know and um and that's healthy uh to have different types of role models within a school system um and also he he the reaction to it was that another kid then took what he saw on the video and made it better and that kid he's like his name was Maxwell right and he was only 10 Right. And so, and Shubham didn't think of it as bad. He thought of it as amazing. Right. That there was this other kid who was only 10 who made what he did better. Of course, (laughs) Shubham then wanted to make his better again, which he did. But that whole mentality to me, and I'm seeing it, we're working with some 16-year-olds from Granada Hills High School in, in L.A., and they've got the same attitude that during their summer holidays, they worked on a project for us and there was a swimming pool in this backyard and it did not get used because they were all in this like little room yeah. building this thing for us. And I was like, what would you be doing if you went here? They're like, oh, well, I volunteer at this camp and teach X and Y. And so the alternative of what they were going to do that summer holidays was also positive. Right. Um, and I know what I was doing as a 16 and 14 year old. If I had summer holidays, I was swimming, I was playing yeah. on the beach. And which is also, I think, should not be ignored. And I think that that's a healthy part of growing up too. And these kids have those outside interests. But the fact that they were willing to do this stuff um, to contribute to this conversation, right. they get my total admiration given what options are available for kids that's these fantastic. days. That's fantastic. No, that's great. That's, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a record-breaking answer. That's great. Um, and last but not least, uh, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is... Oh, that's a great question. Innovation to me is um, being open-minded and enabling or um, accessing the knowledge around you uh, for a greater purpose. That's fantastic. Um, Where can people find you? Uh, Notimpossiblenow.com is where uh, I generally am and people can contact me through there. Um, Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T at notimpossiblenow.com is where people can direct email me um, and all and the usual Kotec. places. Elliot Kotek. <laughs> That's right. No, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for, for joining us. This is, uh, Thanks, this is fantastic. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I said fantastic you. three times in the last <laughs> three minutes. Um, talk about alliteration. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and uh, we will talk to you next time. If you like listening to comedy... Try watching it on the internet. 
The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Schleichinger. I've been friends with her for 10 years. One of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.